I want to talk about a connection and community uh, today. It's been kind of uh, in a lot of things I've been hearing about, a lot of things I've been reading. I, I think where it came up for me in particular was a few days ago, I was a, te- a friend of mine texted me. Um, she moved to Minnesota this year, this summer, and she's her car broke down, and she was texting me about friends who were offering her lifts, new friends that she'd met there, but how hard it is to accept help or ask for help. Um, this this idea that we have to do it all on our own. And then I think the same day or the next day, I saw somebody uh, posting on social media that they needed help, and they were embarrassed and sorry to ask for help, but they really needed some support in a particular area. But all the comments were, but that's what we do. That's, that's how we move through this world. We can't do it alone. We have to ask for help. And, and I, I sat, um, there's a teacher whom I love, who I've mentioned a lot, Larry Ward, and he gives a talk once a month, and his talk was on Wednesday. And when I was listening to that, he mentioned um, the worst problem in the world today is our sense of separation from ourselves and others. And I think that's so true, this idea that we have that we are on our own or should be, you know, the capacity to do it all um, is this allows us to feel that separateness from other beings. And I, I heard a talk a few weeks ago where somebody said that the estrangement is at the heart of the dehumanization, of our dehumanization, and our goal is to restore connection. And I really believe that. And there's, especially now during this time of year with all the different holidays and there's so many expectations of happiness and joy and gaiety and so many people are not feeling that and are feeling left out and are having, you know, the very opposite. And especially right now, there's so much, so much grief in the world that it can be really difficult to have that sense of gaiety. There can be joy, not at, not saying that there isn't, but to uh, recognize that it's not supposed to necessarily be a particular way. And so if we have this expectation that we're supposed to feel a particular way and we don't, there's a, there's a disconnect. There's, a, again, that sense of separation. And um, especially since the pandemic, the pandemic really exacerbated this idea of isolation and loneliness because people were isolated. And it's, it's taken a lot to come out from that. Um, I, made, I made some fudge for my neighbors and I went down a couple, of, a couple of houses down this afternoon and was giving our neighbors some fudge, but they all had COVID and they were all isolated and, and stuck in there. And, and it's like, you know, the woman who answered the door, she was behind the screen. She goes, I thought I was gonna be alone, but now the whole family has it so we can be together. So um, everybody's fine, but it's just, um, you know, it's, it's again, that it's, that's still that separation. And, you know, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm, my, my old professor from UCLA, who is, uh, I'm still working with him in, in various projects, and he wrote a book called At the Origin of Politics, which is the, the, really the origin of politics and urbanization, because he's an archaeologist as well as a historian, and he was talking about in the Neolithic time before the movement towards 
settlements when people were more hunter-gatherers. Um, he said there were three characteristics that were nece- of, of movement from this nomadic, more of a nomadic existence to a settled urban existence. And he said one of the criteria was, um, oh, he said, you know, originally we knew our communities by face. I mean, we knew everybody in our community because they were that small. But as they began to settle down and get get um, settled, we begin to not know everybody by face. And of course, we have to, the mind tells us we have to distinguish people, or the mind doesn't tell us, but the mind allows us to distinguish people. We have to be able to recognize people. We have to be able to recognize our family, our friends, people who may not be safe to be around. But that... Um, we can take it to extremes. One of the other characteristics he mentioned in this in this movement towards urbanization was the distancing from nature. We began to separate ourselves from nature, which I think is really an interesting idea because oftentimes we think we're not even part of nature. There's humans and then there's nature um, without recognizing that we're also animals. And I think that causes a lot of the problems that we're seeing today with the environment. And so to, again, that sense of separation, that disconnection from the reality of who we are and the interconnectedness of all of us. I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about interbeing, how we are all so connected. We inter-are. And it's so easy to lose that. It's so easy to just live in our own silos. Go to a restaurant and look around and see people sitting at a table, and they're all on their own phones. And it's like, they're, they may be sitting together, but they're not in community together. They're just kind of separately walking through um, the world. And, um, you know, Larry Ward talks about how there's, there's fear. Fear takes over when there's this sense of separation, which leads to anger, which is a type of protection. You know, we're, we're separated, and then there's a, a concern about others, and then we create, you know, this begin to other people. We begin to create categories of them and us and good and bad, and, and it becomes really problematic. It, that's when it becomes easy to dehumanize people when we create these ideas of us and them. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, the wonderful Theravada monk, really sums this up um, beautifully. He said, the distant background to this malaise infecting the American psyche is the social ethos of this nation with its celebration of individualism, aggression, and cutthroat competition. This ethos, which has become more pronounced over the past few decades, erodes the ties of empathy and solidarity essential to social cohesion. As a result, many in this country have come to suffer from a chronic sense of isolation and alienation. Rather than feeling connected to others, they find themselves drifting through life alone, forlorn, and confused with no one to turn to for support. It's that that American soup of rugged individualism and pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps and don't need anything from anyone. I think 
I think one of the saddest things I ever saw was I watched a, a show years ago on um, the, dep the Depression and the, um, the Dust Bowl and all the farmers in the Midwest who couldn't grow crops anymore. The soil was just kind of farmed out. And, um, and because of the weather at that time, there was m massive um, famine. And the government was offering to support the families, offering them food. I'm not, I don't remember exactly. And farmers would turn that, turn that help down, saying, we don't take charity. I mean, it's that, that, that delusion, that incredible delusion that's driven by this idea, this, this, this fixed idea of separate and have to do it on our own. It's really um, causes, can cause such great harm in so many different ways. And, um, and I'm sure each of us has a, has a story about how we feel separate from each other. I mean, just kind of how we grow up, we're told you're not, you're not this, you're not that, you're the wrong this, you're not, you don't fit in here, you don't fit in there. Um, it can be so painful. I know one of my stories is that I always feel like I'm on the outside looking in. And when I started sharing that, I started hearing people going, oh yeah, me too. That's actually quite common that we feel that we're over here and everybody else is over there looking in the window, what's going on? Um, and it's really, really painful. It can be really, um, uh, if you're connected to, um, if you're willing to feel it, it can be painful. But so many times we create these stories, and again, that that story of why it's so painful, and it's probably somebody else's fault, and can we blame them? There's a there's a, a book called Social, written by Matthew Lieberman, and he talks about this, and he he talks about how our need to connect is as fundamental as our need for food and water. And when we experience social pain, like a snub, a cruel word, when somebody you know, makes fun of us or says something, the feeling is as real as physical pain. There's a somatic response. You know, I, I, and Sebene Selassie, who wrote a book, said, you belong. She said, you, we should really recognize that, you know, connect to those places that we don't, that we feel we don't fit in, you know, and, and feel that, A, that pain, but B, can we connect to that sense of longing for connection that's underneath that as well. It's that universal longing to connect to be part of what we are part of, but that we feel, you know, separated from. You know, uh, Lieberman says again in the book that we think ourselves relatively immune from those around us while we follow our personal destiny, but it's just a story. It's delusion. It's not true. I got this. I was the, I can do anything. You know, I don't need help. It was a lot of the factor of I was growing up on my own for a large part of my, my youth. I was, I was kind of on my own. And so I grew up with this, I don't need anyone. No, don't help me. No, back away. No, no, no. And obviously I need help. I, I, I've been saying a lot lately, like, I'd be a mess if I didn't have help because I couldn't build this house. I couldn't, I couldn't create Zoom. I couldn't build a laptop to talk to you all. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't make clothes. 
I'd be in really bad, I would not be here if I had to fend for myself in very many ways. And so to begin to recognize that interconnectedness, because when we are interconnected, there, or when we are connected and we recognize that and we begin to see how this delusion keeps us separated and begin to chip away at that delusion, there is a sense of well-being. There is a sense of ease. We become more attuned to ourselves, but we're also attuned to others. And you may be asking yourselves, what's this got to do with Buddhism? Mindfulness supports this connection beyond our friends and the people we know. Mindfulness is what allows us to begin to recognize this connectivity. It has a really beneficial impact on the mind. It begins to, when we really get into the, the contemplative mindfulness practices, it activates those part of our, parts of our brain that um, activate empathy, activate compassion for ourselves and for others. The practice of loving kindness, the heart practices, you know, the Brahma Viharas, where we're, we're, we're recognizing other people and we're offering goodwill and friendship and compassion towards others. It begins to melt the armor because I notice for me, a lot of what that separation is, is a defense. It's a defense mechanism. It's a way to not be hurt because that, those snubs, those, those people calling us names because of what we look like or who we love or where we come from or the language we speak, really is painful. And there's a, that armor helps to protect us against that, but that's not really um, ideal. It's really problematic because then you suffer from that, and it has all these other ramifications. And the Buddha talks about this in that very famous sutta. He talks about the importance of, of friendship and, and community. It's the sutta where Ananda um, comes to him and says, um, the Buddha, the, he's talking about uh, friendship, and but um, Ananda's talking about um, friendship and companionship, and he says this is the half of the holy life. And the Buddha says, no, 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 Ananda. Friendship, companionship, camaraderie is actually the whole of the holy life. It's admirable friendship, admirable uh, companionship, wise friendship, wise companionship. When a monk has admirable people as friends, companions, and comrades, he can be expected to develop and pursue the Noble Eightfold Path. So what the Buddha is saying is that we need this connection. We need this community. We need this support in order to move towards liberation, in order to move towards the freedom that the Eightfold Path allows us to have, that takes us to, that takes us... Um, you know, that brings us toward this. And the Eightfold Path is how we live in harmony with other beings. And the Buddha, in his wisdom, created Sangha. 
he created the, the Sangha of um, monks and nuns, but he also talked about the importance of this with lay people. It's not just if you're not a monastic, you don't get to do this, but he also talked about lay people can access this and to have this these wise friends, Kalyanamita, that's often um, a term you hear used for uh, groups of folks in Sanghas who get together and perhaps study suttas or just get together to talk or you know, connect with each other in a wise and supportive way, Kalyanamita. There's another sutta where the Buddha talked about the different types of, of um, friends, and he talked about friends who are you want to stay away from, the ones who are full of empty words and full of flattery, um, you know, and, and stay away from those who are not there for you. But he talked about the friends the good-hearted friends, the helpers, the ones who protect you when you're vulnerable and are a refuge when you're afraid and support you in tasks that need to be done. And the enduring friend can tell you their secrets but also guard your secrets, not abandoning you in misfortune. The mentor can keep you from doing things that aren't wise and help you to move towards good actions, telling you what you ought to know and showing you the path to liberation. And the compassionate friend does not rejoice in your misfortune, delights in your good fortune, and prevents others from speaking ill of you and encourages others to praise your good qualities. Wow, wouldn't it be nice to have a friend or a few friends who were there for you in those ways who you could trust. And that's what the Buddha talks about. We need to cultivate those friends who, who exhibit these qualities, who exhibit this, this um, lifting up of who you are and supporting you on your path to liberation, who also perhaps, maybe not necessarily along the Buddhist path, but who embodies the qualities that the Buddha says are important as, as he lays out in the Eightfold Path. In another one, he, another sutta, he says, talks about admirable friendship. It's consummate in faith, virtue, generosity, and wisdom. Associate with them and learn from them. So there's a real um, emphasis on cultivation of community, cultivation of friends, because it's the whole of the spiritual life. We cannot become liberated without wise people on the path. And um, as I said, it's, it's, it, it supports us and it, it, it helps us to move in the direction we need to move and there's a sense of well-being, there's a sense of ease to be in community. I mean, we can be... Um, living with a whole bunch of people. I grew up in New York City. There's a bazillion people there. I live in Los Angeles now. There's a bazillion people here. And you can be really lonely among those. But if you, if you can find just a few people, it does, you don't have to have a bazillion friends, but develop a sense of community with those people who are around you. It's really, um, really beneficial. Uh, finding f folks who nurture you friends who don't tear you down. And as I said, mindfulness supports the practice of learning to be open, to be compassionate, to be vulnerable. 
And we have, you know, and uh, many of us have to just be really careful. Those of those folks who have suffered from oppression or discrimination have to perhaps be a little bit more judicious because, you know, I think my, I was, I was thinking about this the other day that I, as, as a white woman, I have a lot of privilege where I was walking and it was really gorgeous on Friday. The sunset was exquisite, exquisite. I was actually talking to strangers in the street and saying, isn't that beautiful? And they'd say, yeah, it's really beautiful. And we would stop and chat. And so, you know, that's, I feel okay doing that, but we have to be wise in how we move through the world as well, um, making sure that we are safe, uh, finding those one or two people, and, and develop that sense of connection where we can be held and supported. Um, and community grows from this. When we can start making a connection with one person or two people or three people in Sangha, hopefully, where we come together in groups like this on retreat, when we go on retreat, we develop those, those mechanisms to be with each other. Um, Larry Yang, who I'm sure many of you know, wrote uh, the book Awakening Together, the spiritual practice of inclusivity and community, and he talks about building community and the necessity of it and building an inclusive community. And in one one piece he talks about beloved community, which is um, an idea developed in the early 20th century by Josiah Royce, but was uh, spoken of very um, very much by uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And Larry says, beloved communities are envisioned as those that embody the values of love and justice in every aspect of their being even when circumstances are difficult or oppressive. A beloved community assumes that all our lives are interrelated and the social nature of our humanity is not secondary to any other aspect of life. As Dr. King reminds us over and over again, we are tied together in the single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. We are all in this together. And so we have to be intentional about creating community. We have to be willing to be vulnerable. I know for me, it's part my, my trip towards or my journey towards not being so isolated began with a willingness to be vulnerable, to open myself up to someone else. Because if I am not vulnerable, I don't know how I will be received. For me, it was all about presenting a particular uh, identity because I was terrified of not being accepted because of my growing up. It was it, it, just because of all the conditioning that I received, I decided in my mind somehow, in my subconscious, that I needed to be a certain way and I didn't need to look a certain way and like certain things and blah, 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 whatever stories I made up. And anything that deviated from that terrified me. And so it was really in practice where that practice of compassion and, and understanding of who I was, warts and all, that I needed to ask for help, that I couldn't do this on my own, 
that, that um, what did Pema Chodron say about enlightened beings? Even people who are enlightened get snot in their nose when they have a cold. So that there's a messiness to our existence that when we are in community with others, wise friendship with, with honorable people on the path, like as the Buddha talks about those folks who are trying to live an ethical life, there's, there's a tremendous, um, there's such a tremendous value that comes from that when you can allow yourself to be true to who you are and allow others to be true to who they are. It's so powerful when you can have that. It's so powerful when that happens. And that's what we're about here. And that's the one sutta where we, the Buddha talks about just as we hold ourselves dear, we recognize that all beings hold themselves dear, all humans hold themselves dear. And we honor each of them just as we honor ourselves. I'm paraphrasing it, but that's the intent of this small sutta. And it's a beautiful sutta. So we honor each other. We, we create this community. We recognize that there are some people still in their greed and their hatred and their delusion, which is why we're judicious as when we move through. You know, we don't just walk around going, be my friend, come to my house. Blah, blah, blah. That's not wise in a, lot of, in a lot of circumstances. So, you know, we have the wisdom, the clarity and the wisdom that goes along with the compassion. And... Uh, um, yeah, because being intentional in creating community, because there's so many unskillful and harmful communities out there. So let yourself be grounded in spiritual friendship, spiritual practice, spiritual framework. It's really, it's really a springboard to everything else. And I will finish with this um, one more uh, offering from Larry Ward. He talked about a, a, a Sanskrit chant that was... Um, kind of around this idea that we are all interconnected. And it says, when there is the realization that we are a microcosm of the macrocosm, that the sun is our eye, the earth is our body, water our creative fluid, the physical form is part of the universal, there is the possibility of wellness and all of it, everything, is held in that space inside the heart. When this is the experience, there is health, which is establishment in your true self. So that when we recognize that we are just a microcosm of the macrocosm, we're just one part of this great whole, that is wellness. That is when we can establish ourselves in our, true, in our true self. That's when we can just experience ourselves in the heart, or as I like to talk about, the undefended heart. So thank you so much, my friends, for your, your, your kind, kind, kind attention. And I would love to... Um, I'd love to hear any comments or thoughts and how, how do you show up in community or are you one of those folks like me who has a heart, who has, you know, been so conditioned by this American idea of rugged individualism and no need to ask for help and don't worry, I've got it and every, everyone for themselves. 
um, it, it's, it's pernicious. It's pernicious how it invades um, every aspect. So thank you, and I will be quiet now. Thank you for visiting Undefended Dharma. These teachings are freely offered. However, if you would like to make a donation to help support the technology that makes these podcasts possible, please visit marystancavage.org backslash support. Thank you.